You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, as Israeli forces fight on the ground in Gaza City, G7 foreign leaders in Japan unite to call for humanitarian pauses. All of us want to end this conflict as soon as possible. And meanwhile, to minimise civilian suffering. Germany has designated a second alternative for Deutschland Regional Association as an extremist group. A judge on Indonesia's constitutional court is dismissed over ethics violations in a case to potentially build a new political dynasty. Plus, we'll check in on Morocco's efforts to double its annual international tourist numbers by 2030. We are here to work on these partnerships, whether with the airline companies or with tour operators or even investors in hotel capacities and entertainment as well. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. A month into the war between Israel and Hamas, the Israeli military says it's now fighting in the depths of Gaza City after encircling the northern part of the besieged Palestinian enclave in the hunt for Hamas's leadership. Meanwhile, Hamas-run authorities say homes were bombed in Gaza City overnight, with deaths reported. Haaretz journalist Alison Kaplan-Summer has the latest. Alison, thank you for joining us. Where do things stand currently in Gaza City? Well, uh, it sounds like there is a ring of Israeli forces around Gaza City and they are, you know, going in step by step, slowly, slowly doing uh, what they can to uh, accomplish their mission, which is to destroy the Hamas military infrastructure there. Um, There are responses to President Biden's calls for humanitarian corridors. And for weeks now, Israel's been uh, calling on civilians to get out of northern Gaza and head south. It seems like now that the squeeze is really on and that there are corridors available um, after some uh, problems at the beginning with Hamas firing on the Israeli troops as they um, as they uh, maintain the corridors. But because of a lack of uh, food and water in northern Gaza, it sounds like finally in mass numbers, um, the last of the civilians are uh, are heading south out of uh, out of that area, out of northern Gaza, so that um, they won't uh, be in the way of the Israeli offensive uh, on the Hamas uh, headquarters. And uh, the Israeli goal is to uh, is to trap the Hamas leaders in uh, inside Gaza City. And so far in this uh, conflict, there's been sort of uh, bombardments, aerial and using armoured vehicles. But we're now at the point, aren't we, where it's going to be troops on the ground, uh, hand-to-hand combat. Uh, How prepared are Israeli forces for that? And are they worried uh, about uh, entering that tunnel network and what they might find? Well, from what I've heard, they're extremely prepared and they are on the ground, mostly in their armored vehicles. And they do a combination of being inside the vehicles and uh, and getting out on the ground, kind of fighting on screens inside the vehicles and then actually getting out and fighting. There's really a protocol after so many uh, years of tunnel fighting for uh, for dealing with the tunnels. They don't actually go into the tunnels. There's a lot of um, uh, ways that they, they destroy and they attack the tunnels, again, without venturing in them. And they 
don't want to walk into traps that the Hamas has uh, has set there. So um, uh, unfortunately, we are seeing casualties um, every single day. Israeli soldiers uh, falling, which is very difficult because these are, you know, in for Israelis, 19 and 20 year old people's brothers and fathers and sons uh, and daughters. Um, uh, so every day, uh, at least um, a handful of, uh, of names are announced as, as casualties of this as this groundwork continues. And Israeli intelligence believes that some of the Hamas leadership are in a station in a bunker underneath the Al-Quds hospital. Uh, There are, of course, strict rules when it comes to hospitals uh, in war zones. Is Israel, do you think, prepared to go into that hospital now where we know that patients are still being treated to try to root out that leadership? Uh, Israel is determined to root out the leadership. So I'm sure that in a way that is going to put as few civilians in harm's way as possible, and it doesn't seem like that's completely avoidable, that they're going to pursue that. But there is a wide political consensus in Israel, really across the spectrum, that after the atrocities and devastation and uh, murderous um, campaign that happened on October 7th, that Hamas cannot be allowed to maintain uh, military infrastructure in uh, in Gaza right next or, you know, meters away from uh, from Israeli civilians. And so therefore, um, there's a wide consensus in Israel that this has to be pursued uh, towards the end. And that means um, uh, finding a way to attack the command and control centers of Hamas, even despite the fact that they are hidden um, in places like hospitals. And beneath that political consensus amongst ordinary Israelis, what is the mood like, both in terms of, you know, the casualties that you've mentioned that are coming back now for young people, uh, but also how the last month has played out? Um, I think Israel is in a very somber mood, but yet a very determined mood. Um, while in the past there was ambivalence about whether, you know, you try to um, maintain some sort of relationship with Hamas, despite the fact that their declared goal was to destroy Israel and uh, all of the um, terrorist um, actions that they've been uh, pursuing um, over the years. Um, there was a little bit of ambivalence of how hard do you go after them. And now after what happened on October 7th, I think that it's um, it's closed that question mark that there's just uh, that it's a failed experiment trying to live next door to a regime like Hamas since uh, 2007 when they violently took over um, uh, Gaza. And so um, while I would say that there is no clear vision as to what that end game looks like politically, which is a problem and very problematic, the problem is uh, Israel not having faith in its current political leadership. Um, Despite that, there's a huge amount of solidarity among the Israeli um, population and civilian population, and they are 100 percent behind the goal of this mission and behind the military's um, efforts to uh, to do this and to keep Israel safe. And there's no, you know, calls for revenge and blood. And, you know, um, uh, I think Israel is very focused, number one, on getting the more than 240 hostages being held um, in Gaza out, number one. And number two, um, uh, keeping its border safe and keeping its citizens safe. So the goal of this um, of this mission has nothing to do with revenge. It has everything to do with security and trying to stay safe and, again, trying to get these hostages back. Has there been much reaction to G7 foreign ministers calling for humanitarian pauses? And this morning, the fact that Hamas-run health ministry claims now more than 10,500 people have been killed in Gaza. Is there any mood that there should be uh, sort of greater humanitarian support for those that have fled to the south as Israel advised? 
I don't think, um, you know, Israelis want humanitarian uh, um, horrors to occur or, or, or have anything against uh, humanitarian efforts. But I think that there's um, an anger as to a lack of reciprocity. Again, there's a huge focus on the hostages here. There are more than um, 30 children, Israeli children being uh, held in Gaza. So um, there's there's a question of um, uh, wanting humanitarian for humanitarian uh, actions. Why isn't the Red Cross being allowed into guarantee their health? Why aren't they being visited the way that international conventions see? So if there is any hesitation to offer humanitarian aid and humanitarian um, uh, gestures to the Gazan population, any opposition to that stems from uh, a desire for it to be reciprocal and wanting to have some form of sign of life, sign of help, assistance for the hostages who are being held in Gaza. Alison Kaplan-Summer, thank you very much. Now, as just mentioned, G7 foreign ministers have been meeting in Japan in an attempt to speak with one voice. They've called for humanitarian pauses in Gaza. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been speaking at a press conference at the end of that summit in Tokyo. All of us want to end this conflict as soon as possible. And meanwhile, to minimise civilian suffering. But as I discussed with my G7 colleagues, those calling for an immediate ceasefire have an obligation to explain how to address the unacceptable result it would likely bring about. Hamas left in place with more than 200 hostages with the capacity and stated intent to repeat October 7th again and again and again. Ultimately, the only way to ensure that this crisis never happens again is to begin setting the conditions for durable peace and security and to frame our diplomatic efforts now with that in mind. Well, watching that press conference was Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief, who I spoke to just before we came on air. It's the end of two days of talks um, tonight. And there was a, you know, the message was a unified message, which and the, the sort of headline, I think, will be that the G7 is pressing for what they're calling humanitarian pauses. So they were careful to sort of balance out the, you know, they're very critical of the Hamas attack on October the 7th, but they were also saying it's really urgent that they address the humanitarian crisis um, in Gaza. So that's that's been the sort of balance they've tried to strike. And they're calling for humanitarian pauses, note the plural, to allow for you know more aid to come through, civilian movement, and hopefully the release of hostages. France was the only G7 nation to vote last month at the UN in favour of a resolution calling for a humanitarian truce. Was there any tension in Tokyo whilst they tried to present a united front? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, that's very public and everyone, you know, they're almost well aware that there were differing stances. I think the feeling here is that, you know, poor old Anthony Blinken, you know, he's come off this four day absolute whirlwind tour of the Middle East. He came from Turkey. He's going to Seoul tomorrow. And really, I think, you know, it's clear from, you know, a rather tired looking Anthony Blinken that he is very keen to press for humanitarian aid to come into Gaza. And I think that really the the emphasis was not going over the differences between the countries. And, and you know, Clearly, you know, Britain abstained on that vote. US vetoed it. The Security Council, France wanted it. So, yeah, that there were clearly differences of opinions. But I think this time they just wanted to get a united message and the statement didn't, you know, it was it was quite sort of unequivocal. And just comparing it to how the G7 reacted to the onset of the Russia-Ukraine war, around the globe there was a lot of support for Ukraine. It wasn't uh, too difficult for the G7 to build a case about supporting Ukraine. Is it proving more challenging for them with this conflict? 
Yeah, I, think, I mean, it's also interesting that you raise Ukraine because I think Japan was very keen to get that into the final statement. Um, that's just an aside, really, but just saying, you know, unwavering support for uh, Ukraine's independence and supporting Ukraine. Yeah, I think obviously it's a very divisive issue, this one. And, you know, everyone's seeing the images that are going around the world, including Japan, these horrific scenes in Gaza. But no, I, I think, you know, really the and Anthony Blinken raised this point that, you know, he raised the question, if you're calling for a ceasefire, where does that leave the Israeli hostages? And I think that's probably the, you know, the issue that uh, that he wants to get across. Um, yeah, there are very, very strong views on, on both sides, clearly. And how has Japan itself reacted to the conflict? And traditionally, what has its approach been to Israel? Japan is now much more sort of prominent, I think, on the global stage. It really waded in on the Ukraine issue. Surprisingly, generally used to sort of sit back, really offer a lot of financial assistance, but not really raise its head above the parapet. With Ukraine, it came out very strongly in supporting Ukraine, criticising Russia, which has had a massive fallout diplomatically um, for a very close neighbour, it has to be said, you know, we, you know, the Hokkaido on the doorstep of Siberia. So, you know, obviously a lot of tension there. But um, I think with this issue, um, it, it Initially, Japan condemned Hamas. This is what happened on October the 7th. Very critical. But it has actually, I think, behind the scenes, you know, and now we know that they're offering a lot of humanitarian assistance, financial assistance to Gaza. They just topped that up um, this week. So they're talking about $75 million of, uh, of humanitarian aid right now. So I think they're trying to take a measured stance. They don't want to be out of step with the U.S., that's just the way foreign policy is here. They don't want to be seen publicly disagreeing. So at the moment, they're very much condemning Hamas, but supporting um, humanitarian aid. Japan has traditionally been a sort of resource poor when it comes to oil. And so it's needed to maintain strong ties with countries in the Middle East. Have they been trying to bolster those ties? Yeah, I mean, that's always an issue for Japan. You're absolutely right. It is resource poor. And, you know, Prime Minister Kishida, Fumio Kishida, has been, you know, he was in the Middle East earlier this year. He was in Saudi Arabia. Very, very important for Japan. You know, obviously, you've got most of the uh, nuclear power stations <laughs> still switched off. They never came back. Most of them didn't come back on after the tsunami. So it's, a, you know, a big issue for Japan. This this need for oil is, is very, very important. So, yes, I think Japan has to strike a, a, a very careful balance. It doesn't want to upset its allies in the Middle East. And finally, Japan has in recent years been moving away from its post-World War II neutrality stance. It's been trying to develop its own military. Do you think uh, that sort of this sort of rise now in conflicts, you've got Ukraine, you've got the potential for the conflicts between Israel and Hamas to spread more regionally. Is that reinforcing a feeling amongst Japanese people that it's right for them to once again take their defence more seriously? Honestly, I think that's that's a huge and it's a separate issue, really. Japan's constitution doesn't allow it to have an aggressive military. It has it only has a defensive force. And that has been an ongoing issue for a long time. Should Japan change that article of its constitution? Should it should it scrap something that, that came in? It was it was the constitution written by the Americans after the war. It's it's a very, very contentious issue here. And the majority of support for Japan is for keeping the constitution as it is. People do not want to change the constitution. There's a small vocal minority who do. But overall, um, the feeling is that Japan prefers to, to stay with its pacifist stance. Fiona Wilson there in Tokyo. Now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. 
Police in Madrid clashed with protesters who opposed talks between the Spanish government and separatist parties over a possible amnesty for Catalonian independence activists. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez hopes to secure another term in office but needs the support of separatist parties to form a government. Refugees from Sudan's West Darfur region have reported a wave of ethnically motivated killings by the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. The RSF took control of the main army base in the state on Tuesday. Millions of people have been displaced since fighting between paramilitaries and Sudanese government forces broke out in April. And shares in Nintendo jumped nearly 6.5% on Wednesday after the firm announced plans for a live-action film version of one of its most popular characters. The Japanese gaming giant also raised its earnings forecast for the year. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Sophie, thank you. To Germany next, where the Office for the Protection of the Constitution has announced that it has classified the Regional Association of the Alternative for Germany political party in the state of Saxony-Anhalt as a proven extremist group. The AFD in Saxony-Anhalt is the second state association of the party to be categorised in this way. Tom Sunderman is a political journalist who reports on extremism in Germany. He joins us now from Munich. Um, Tom, what exactly did this regional group do to attract this designation? Yeah, officials have reviewed numerous statements made by AFD functionaries and politicians in the past and found that those were racist, that they were anti-Muslim, that they were anti-Semitic. An example is a statement made by the AFD vice chairman just a mere month ago in the parliament of Saxony-Anhalt that politician called violent criminals with a foreign origin, a quote, the barbarians and little monsters. And according to the agency, the AFD is determined to erode and eventually abolish democracy in its current form, a democracy that is based on a lawmaking process in a parliament. Also, political spectators have always pointed out that the whole principle of the party is based on eroding trust of the citizens in the state, in its officials, in its institutions. And this is now an official government standpoint. And what will the repercussions be for this group? Because as you mentioned there, if the authorities really crack down hard, it might help the group say, uh, you know, in their cause uh, about sort of, you know, deep state actors and things. Certainly. I mean, the AFD can now be subject to potent intelligence operations, such as acquiring intelligence through undercover agents or rather having members of the party act as covert sources for the security agency. It could also be subject to wiretapping and eavesdropping. But the more immediate effect is a message to its supporters and voters. The party is well known for funneling anti-state sentiments and actively working with prejudices against refugees and with racist attitudes. So this classification as far right now officially confirms that this rhetoric is not just a campaign tactic, but rather the foundation of the party itself. So even eager supporters might want to ask themselves whether they still whether they are still keen to support a party with that extremist label on it. However, more than just a few supporters and the party itself do call this a plot designated specifically to muzzle a conservative voice. And if you take a peek to the United States, to Donald Trump and his fans, you can well see how successful that victim tactic can be. Mm. And what's been the response centrally from the AFD? Because it's the second time that this has happened. Yes, the other fractions in the state parliament in Saxony-Anhalt are in support of the classification 
one member of the Social Democrats has stated that this designation is an act of a functioning democracy, of a functioning state. The AFD itself doesn't take another stance, of course. AFD regional chairman Martin Reichert called it a defamation, has already voted that the party will take legal proceedings and fight the classification in court. Also, politicians of the federal party have taken the same stance. They are claiming that this step is not more than a reaction to how well the party is doing in current polls. If there were elections in Saxony-Anhalt today, AFD would be the strongest political power with about one-third of the votes. And also, if it has gained a significant amount of traction, over the last months, Germany-wide. What this narrative leaves out, though, is that the classification is not a sudden surprising move. It has been expected by many for quite a, tong for quite a long time already. See that uh, former classification in Thuringia in 2021. And has there been any word on this from Chancellor Scholz? Um, Scholz himself has has not reacted at all his party did and uh, is also in support of this move by the agency i mean his current immigration related politics that uh you can observe they are not only a result of pressure from the far right of from the afd but also from pressure within his own political party and on that point, he seems to be changing the sort of legacy immigration yes. policies left by Angela Merkel. What moves is he wanting to make? Um, he is uh, taking some rather soft steps uh, against some forms of immigration, namely illegal immigration, namely asylum seekers. Um, they are not as reckless as many citizens had hoped for. They include less money transfers to asylum seekers and at least trying to deport a higher number of asylum seekers. But right now it is totally unclear how successful these steps will be in actually lowering the numbers of refugees who make their way to Germany. Tom Sunderman, thank you. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, a judge on Indonesia's constitutional court has been dismissed over ethics violations after a case which allowed President Joko Widodo's son to run for vice president. The case caused an outcry and triggered suggestions that uh, there had been some swaying of the court. Now, Johannes uh, Nograho is a columnist for the Jakarta Globe and a political analyst. Johannes, uh, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you give us some background on this case? and the result. Good morning to you, Vincent. Well, let me start by clarifying that uh, Anwar Usman wasn't dismissed as a judge. He was demoted um, from being the presiding judge or the chief justice of our constitutional court to a mere member now. Ah, so right. he wasn't dismissed. Okay. Uh, but just... And 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 what exactly took place in the case? What were they trying to do uh, with this attempt to make him vice president? Well, uh, our constitutional bruhaha started about three years ago when President Widodo wanted to extend his term. You see, he's 
he's he's he's served two terms and he's due to step down next year, but uh, he wanted to extend it to a third term. That was three years ago, and he. Well, let me give you a cultural context. It's not really, uh, it's really bad form in Indonesia to be forward, to be you know overly ambitious. So he went about it in a roundabout way. So he got his men to lobby parliament and uh, political parties to you know to either postpone the election or to amend the constitution. And he didn't get very far with that. So he started looking at other options. And he basically wanted to make sure that his successor, the next president of Indonesia, would be loyal to him uh, so that he could pull strings behind the scenes, so to speak. And he started grooming Ganjar Pranowo, who is now a presidential candidate from PDIP, of which the party of which um, the president is a member. But then he started looking other ways. He is now settled on Prabowo, his um, former nemesis in the last two elections. And Prabowo, on his part, wanted to make sure Jokowi's support, you know, uh, the president's support. And the best way to do it was would be to make his son, Gibran, the president's son, his running mate, which he has done. So that's the background, basically. And what's been the reaction amongst Indonesian people uh, to this case and also their faith in the judiciary? Well, um, lots of people are appalled by this and uh, civil society is up in arms. But uh, the problem is our civil society is not strong enough um, to stand up to power. And um, there was uh, uh, Mr. Widodo had actually very high approval ratings before all this, it was about 80% or something like that. And then there was another poll recently conducted, but it only dipped slightly to about 70% or something. So I think it's possible that the president will actually get away with it and because do- of his you know, popularity. Hmm. And is that what uh, Indonesian people want? Do they want to see a new political dynasty emerging? Well, the problem is um, dynastic politics is very common in Indonesia. You know, it's um, the thing is, it's uh, it was a huge surprise to people, lots of people that uh, Mr. Widodo did it because it's never been done at the very top level of government. But it's very commonplace with regional governments, for example. You know, your mayors, governors. When their two terms end and they get their wives, their siblings or their offspring in some cases to run. So it's not really a new thing for us. You know, it's sort of part of our political culture, I suppose. But yes, it was really indeed a surprise that the president actually, you know, blatantly did it at the very top of government, uh, top level of government. Johannes Nogroho, thank you. And finally, on today's programme, Morocco is on course to almost double its annual international tourist numbers by 2030, despite the devastating earthquake that hit the country in September. In the first seven months of the year, Morocco's visitors were up 15% on the same period in 2019. This week in London, Morocco is the premier partner of the world travel market. At the event, Monocle's Tom Webb sat down with the country's tourism minister, Fatim Zara Amour, to find out their plan for growth. 
So on arrival here at the World Travel Fair, the Morocco partnership, you can see it everywhere. You can see at the moment you step into the building. Why did you want to have such a presence here today? Well, first of all, we have we always have participated to the WTM because we believe that this is an excellent platform for all our partners and future partners. And last year was a special year for Morocco because we won an award, which was the best stand design. And we decided that we wanted to be the premier partner this year because we have strong ambitions for Morocco. You have very, very strong ambitions. By 2030, you're looking to double the number of tourists. How are you going to achieve this? Our objective is really to reach 26 million tourists by 2030, which is basically the double of what we were doing in 2019. And this is especially important in the context of organizing, co-organizing the 2030 FIFA World Cup with Spain and Portugal. And to do that, first we believe that we really have the potential to reach these objectives. And to do that, we have put in place a roadmap which builds on a new offer, on more air connectivity, on encouraging investments. And we are here to work on these partnerships, whether with the airline companies or with tour operators or even investors in hotel capacities and entertainment as well. So speaking of hotel capacities, staffing, how are you building the infrastructure to cope with the number of tourists you're expecting? Well, today, just to, to give you some figures, we have about 300,000 beds in Morocco. We expect to have 100 or 150 incremental by 2030. So we are connecting with many investors that are interested in Morocco. You know, after the last World Cup, where the Moroccan team had an extraordinary performance in Qatar, we have many countries that are interested now in investing in Morocco and not only the traditional markets. I think that we have many investors that are really willing to be part of this exciting journey. So that's one of the reasons why we are here. And traditional markets, usually European tourists, how are you reaching the markets outside of Europe? Well, we have opened many delegations in new countries such as South Korea. We are now present in Australia, India, and we are trying to diversify the markets because you know that 70% of the source market is Europe. But if you want to expand, if you want to double the number of tourists, we have to go far from Europe. So we are working on Latin America from one side and North America. And we are working on the Asian market as well. China will have a direct flights by 24. We're working with Japan, with really many, many other countries. And are you diversifying your offering? Morocco famous for its sandy beaches. What can people expect? Well, we are diversifying the offer. In fact, we have already a very diversified offer, but we are not selling it this way. So we are now moving from marketing Morocco by its destinations to marketing it via the, the experiences. So now we have about 14 different experiences, like you have beach and sun, the traditional offer, but you have also desert and adventures, you have mice, city break, you have ocean waves, which is, which is water sports. So we have many, many other offers that we are marketing the right way now, and this is part of the new offering. And in terms of what Morocco are, are able to offer, it's been two months since the devastating earthquake in the region. How has tourism reopened? Has it been able to bounce back quickly? 
Well, we're very happy because it, it bounced back very quickly, especially in Marrakech, which was not, you know, the epicenter of the earthquake. To give you a number, September was the best September ever, despite the earthquake, because we really, we started communicating very strongly with the partners to reassure them about what's going on in Morocco. And things got back very quickly. And we expect even to have a record year this year in 20, 2023. That was Morocco's tourism minister, Fatim Zara Amour, talking to Monocle's Tom Webb. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>